You are listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel, York Region. For more information, visit harvestyorkregion.ca. All right, let's get our Bibles out this morning and turn to John chapter 20. John chapter 20, as uh, we continue in our series, Behold Your King. Today we take a look at a message entitled, Encountering Jesus in the Flesh. And it is the uh, time when Christ comes and reveals himself to Thomas. And I was going to be diving into that in just a moment. But um, behold your king. Pilate was the one who said that. He said it in John chapter 19. It was really in mockery when uh, he was delivering Jesus over to the religious leaders. And he said, behold your king. Not realizing the truth of what he was saying. Um, We saw that truth as we came on Good Friday and saw the uh, death of Jesus Christ. And uh, we beheld our king. And then we came back on the weekend, Saturday night and Sunday. We had a party last weekend as we beheld our king in the resurrection. And uh, today we behold our king in the encounter that he has primarily with Thomas. And it's found in John chapter 20, 24 to 29. And in these verses, Thomas, when he sees Jesus, makes the amazing statement. He says, my Lord and my God. And that's going to be the challenge for us today as we consider who Jesus Christ is. What's the truth of that statement in your life? Jesus Christ, my Lord and my God. So you get your Bibles open, I trust, to John 20. Let's stand together. We want to honor God as we read his word. And I'm going to start at verse 24. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We have seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see in his hands the mark of the nails, and place my finger in the mark of the nails, and place my hand into his side, I will never believe. Eight days later his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. And then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here and see my hands and put your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. And Jesus said to him, Have you believed because you have seen? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the truth, the reality of the working of our Savior in coming, in dying, in the resurrection. And then, Lord, in, in this presentation to Thomas, where, where Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God, and what did that mean to him? And what significance did it have? And what significance should that have for us? And, and then the end of the verse, blessed are those who believe who have not seen. That's us, Lord. That's your church. And, um, and so, Lord, there's a lot of truth for us here today, lots for us to learn. We pray that you would give us ears to listen carefully to your word. Father, would you give us minds that we might understand? And then, God, would you give us passionate hearts because Jesus Christ is risen, my Lord and my God. Do the work that's needed in each of us for your glory and for your fame, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you. You can take your seats. Doubt defined means to be uncertain about something, to believe that something may not be true or is unlikely, or to have no confidence in something or someone. We all have doubts. They call this guy um, Doubting Thomas, and I actually believe that's a bad rap that he gets. Um, 
He's no different than any of us are. He's no different than uh, many of the Bible characters that we see when uh, they were asked to do something that seemed to be impossible or believe something that seemed to be impossible. They had some doubts. They had some question. They, they didn't believe right away. Um, we saw that in, in Moses when God called him and he had his excuses as to why he couldn't do what God was calling him to do. We saw it in Joshua and he had his questions and his doubts and the Lord in, uh, Josh, in Joshua chapter one, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people. We see it in Gideon when God calls him to go out against the Midianites. Lots of people have lots of doubts and, and we have them too. Um, it's interesting, I was listening to a, a, a news story, this would be about a year ago, and in the middle of the news story, the, the person announced that the person in the story was a doubting Thomas. And I thought, well, even the world puts this on this guy. But the reality is, he's a lot like us. And Thomas had some amazing characteristics as well. He was, he was loyal, he was committed, he obviously was a thinker, he asked questions, he said what he thought, he wrestled with the issues. Maybe a little bit pessimistic and a little bit slow to get on board. But when he got on board, then he got on board. A tradition says that after Thomas saw the Lord and made this statement, my Lord and my God, as time went on, Thomas went to India. And there he led and planted many, many churches. But we think of him as the doubter. We think of him as the disbeliever. And there's some reasons for that. The, um, if it wasn't for the book of John, we would only know Thomas as a guy on a list. But in the book of John, uh, John points him out a couple of times. In John eleven sixteen, 16, the Lord is talking about going to Jerusalem. And it's Thomas who says, uh, so Thomas called the twins, said to his fellows, let us also go that we may die with him. Um, not a statement of great confidence and hope but maybe a statement of some doubting and disbelief. In John chapter 14, Thomas makes this statement. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you're going. Remember, Jesus is preparing them for his ultimate going to the cross and, and then to heaven. And uh, he says, Lord, we don't know where you are going. How can we know the way? And Jesus answers his question, with one of the most incredible verses in the entire Bible. And so if it weren't for Thomas and his inquisitiveness and his questioning and maybe his doubting or even his disbelief, we wouldn't have John 14, verse 6. And Jesus said to him, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Have you ever doubted? Have you ever wondered? You ever disbelieved? You're no different than Joshua or Moses or Gideon or a myriad of other Bible characters, and you're no different than Thomas. And so we want to take a look at the text today and see some things about Thomas and uh, what he learned and how God worked. And here's the first thing. Thomas, you can put the word doubt in there if you want. Thomas hesitates in the face of the impossible. Thomas hesitates in the face of the impossible. Verses 24 and the first part of verse 25. Now Thomas, one of the twelve, called the twin, was not with them when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, we have seen the Lord. We have seen the Lord. And Thomas is asking to, be, to believe that Jesus Christ is risen. And he hesitates. 
and he struggles. Just think if that was you in that room with the other 11 who are there and maybe a few others. And and they're like, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord, we've seen the Lord. But he hadn't seen the Lord. He hesitates when what seems to be impossible is thrown in his face. But the the others had had a great advantage. If you just go back to the verses before that, starting in verse 19. On the evening of that day, the first day of the week, the doors being locked where the disciples were for fear of the Jews, Jesus came and stood among them and said to them, Peace be with you. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. And then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. And Jesus said to them again, Peace be with you as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. And when he had said this, he breathed on them and said to them, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. And if you withhold forgiveness from any, it is withheld. You see, the rest of them had had a meeting with Jesus. They had been there and they had seen. And so as they come to him and they say, We've seen the Lord. See, I had always understood that when Thomas went, Well, unless I get to and unless I get to, unless I get to, I think it was the most natural thing that he did. Because probably as they told the story, because we know that this in fact happened, I just read it to you, when Jesus came, he showed them his hands. He showed them his feet. He showed them his side. His response seems totally reasonable to me. When he faces this impossibility that Jesus Christ is risen, even though the masses, the people in the room all knew, he didn't know. His response seems pretty reasonable to me. They're saying, Thomas, Thomas, no, no, he was there. We saw him. He showed us his hands. He he showed us his side. He, He allowed us to be a part and see what was going. We saw him, and he's alive. The next thing I want us to see that Thomas, or doubt, identifies the struggle or his struggle. Look at the second part of verse 25. But he said to them, unless I see in his hands the marks of the nails and place my fingers into the marks of the nails and place my hand into his side i will i will never believe see they had seen it they had expressed it they had told it and his comment isn't i don't believe in a obtuse a strong and arrogant statement but rather it's like i need i need to see this i need to see the lord i need to understand that jesus christ is alive Thomas is a good example in many ways. He refused to say he understood when he didn't. He refused to pretend to believe when he didn't. Thomas basically says, I'll believe it when I see it. That's how we would say that today. I'll believe it when I see it see it. That happens lots of times in our life. I can't think, help but think of the parent who's a teenage uh, child, student, says to them, I'm going to bl- clean my room before Saturday. And the parents look at you and they say, I'll believe it when I see it, right? Well, that's a little bit of what's going on for Thomas. He's just wrestling and he's struggling and he's wondering. And um, I want us to see some of the whys of doubting or disbelief, if you want to call it that. The whys of doubt. Uh, What does your doubt look like? Or or what causes us to doubt? 
One of those things might be um, a lack of confidence. We doubt because we have a lack of confidence. Now, that's the why. I have a lack of confidence, like the kid playing hockey who doesn't know if he can raise the puck, and now he's going in on his first breakaway, and he's all nervous, and he's afraid, and he's lacking in confidence, and he shoots the puck, and finally it leaves the ice and goes in the top corner, and he scores his first goal, and, and now he's not lacking in confidence like he did before. But before, he doubted he could do it. He wondered if he could do it. Now he knows that he can do it, and sometimes we doubt because we lack confidence Sometimes we doubt because of disbelief. We just don't believe it's possible. You don't believe it's possible that your teenage student is actually going to clean their room. And so you doubt. Sometimes we doubt because of history. Uh, maybe you've been hurt or you've been deceived in the past or you've been let down. And as a result of that history, you have doubts. Or maybe because of distrust maybe in an inconsistent boss or an inconsistent friend, and you're just not sure that you can believe, and, and you doubt. Maybe you doubt because your life is filled with anxiety, and you worry, 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 and don't be anxious for anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving. Remember, we learned that in Philippians but our lives are filled with worry all the time. And 99% of the time, it never happens in our lives. But we have doubts because our lives are filled with anxiety and worry. Maybe you doubt because there's a lack of facts. You just don't know enough things. And, and that can happen in the workplace. And you're not sure a plan's a good one or not a good one. Or you're in your marriage and you're making some plans and you're not sure. And you doubt because there's a lack of facts. That can be a reason for doubt. Sometimes we doubt because of the circumstances we are in. We find our lot in life and we're just not sure that's ever going to change and we have an insecurity or, or doubting. I think sometimes we doubt even because of selfishness because I want what I want and a result can be doubting in other things. Sometimes we doubt because of sin and sin is permeated our heart and we allow it to rule there and we doubt whether God could ever really restore us and we doubt whether we could ever really be back in the game and we think we're going to be on the bench for the rest of our lives and that must have been going on in Peter's life. Peter is standing here watching exactly what's going on here in this text and he must have been like, oh man, but what about me? But what about me? But what about me? And uh, we're going to see the story of Peter next week as we consider um, an encounter with Jesus in his restoration. But maybe sin. Uh, maybe, maybe you're being asked to believe the impossible and you doubt. See, that's what happened to Thomas. Thomas being asked to believe the impossible and he he doubts. And those are the whys of some of the reasons that we doubt. But in our faith and in our faith walk, what's the what? What do we doubt? Especially when we think about God because he is the source of our hope. He is the source of our confidence. And ultimately, if we get our views of God wrong, then doubting will rule. Anxiety will rule. Fear will rule. A lack of confidence will rule. And so if we have wrong views about God, we'll end up with doubt and disbelief and so here's seven things about god that sometimes we doubt here's the first time first thing we doubt god's plan we doubt god's plan 
It's because we have a plan and we want it to be what we want it to be and his plan isn't what we want and therefore we doubt. Um, in Jeremiah 29, 11, it says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for wealth or welfare, not wealth, welfare and not for evil to give you a future and a hope. We doubt God's plan. Ephesians 2.10 says, for we are his workmanship. God is working. He is developing. He is creating. He is, we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before that we should walk in them. Hebrews 13.5 says, keep your life free from the love of money and be content with what you have. For he said, I'll never leave you nor forsake you. And sometimes we doubt because we doubt God's plan. Because God's plan isn't maybe the direction we were thinking things were go or wanted. And, and we don't have the confidence just to trust God for his plan and we doubt. Here's another one. We doubt God's promises. We doubt God's promises when things aren't happening on our timeline. The way that we wrote the script. And so we doubt God's promises. In Psalm 37, 4 it says, Delight yourself in the Lord and he'll give you the desires of your heart. God promises to give us the desires of our heart when? When we delight ourselves in the Lord. And when what you want and what God want line up, you get it every time. And God promises that to us. But we doubt because we want stuff on our timeline. We want God to work in the way that would fit into our schedule. 2 Corinthians 1.20 says, For all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. In Ephesians 3.20 it says, Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we ask or think, according to his power at work within us. And when, we don't, when things don't happen on our timeline, sometimes we doubt the very promises of God. Here's a, here's a third one. We doubt God's ability to provide or we doubt God's provision. When we don't get the stuff we want, I wanted this and I didn't get it and therefore we doubt God's provision. Psalm 23, 1. We looked at this psalm, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd. I shall not want I shall not be in want because the Lord is going to provide. Isn't it interesting that we're in the top five percentile in the world and most dissatisfied people in the world and Christians all over the world who don't have near the things we have are so satisfied with God and so satisfied with his provision and so satisfied with his ability to take care of their needs and, and yet we wrestle Matthew 6, 26 says, Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not more of more value than they? And Philippians 4, 19, And my God will supply every need of yours according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. And we doubt God's ability to provide, especially when we don't get the stuff that we want and we do we doubt God's pruning sometimes. The discipline that God brings in our lives. And it happens to everyone. In, um, in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 6, it says, For the Lord disciplines the ones he loves, and he chastises every son whom he receives. 
In 1 Peter 1.7, it says, so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. We doubt, we doubt God's pruning. We doubt the value that it has, especially when we are in a place of disobedience and I'm on the I'm going to get what I want plan, God, and I don't care what you want. And and God has to come and he has to discipline us. And in those days, we doubt the Lord because it hurts, and yet he does it because he loves us. Like the parent disciplining their child and saying, this is going to hurt me more than it's going to hurt you. You don't understand that when you're 8 or 10 or 12, but when you're 28 or 30 or 35 and disciplining your child, you understand it in a whole new and in a different way that the pruning and the discipline is for your good and And maybe you're disobedient to God right now in some area of your life and you're going through some pruning as a result of it. And don't doubt God's working in this. He's doing it for your good. So we doubt his pruning. Three more real quick. We sometimes doubt God's person or his character. We believe Satan's lies. Satan says, has God not said And we believe the lies of the evil one and we believe the lies of the world instead of trusting God in his character. In Isaiah 40, 28, have you not heard? Have have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Isaiah 41, 10, fear not for I am with you. Be not dismayed for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Sometimes we doubt God's purposes and we look at what's happening in our life and and we wonder whether God is really in control. And yet, Proverbs 19 says, many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purposes of the Lord that will stand. And in 2 Peter 1.3, his divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us to his own glory and his excellence. One more. We doubt God's priorities for us because we don't understand that God is sovereign and he is in control and he knows the beginning from the end and we need to trust God as we walk and move forward because he is a sovereign God. In Job 42.10 it says, I, I know that you can do all things and that no purposes of yours can be thwarted. Hey, church, God never promised us that it would be easy. As a matter of fact, He promised us it would not be easy. But He did promise that He would never leave us or forsake us. He did promise to send the Spirit to comfort us and help us and lead us and guide us. And He did promise to us amazing eternal life and amazing hope and so Thomas Thomas finds himself caught in the middle of all of this and all of this reality and all of this that is going on and and the Lord appears to him and he had his doubts he wondered but what about you 
What about you in your walk and your faith? We're going to see how the Lord turns this on its head for him in just a moment. But, but what about your doubts? What about your doubts about God directing in your family? You've you got a child who's not going in the right way, and, and you're wondering, can God really deal with this? Can God really? Are you praying? Are you fasting? Are you in the Word? Are you committing this to the Lord? Are you seeking to be a godly example in every way? Have you gone back and confessed in areas that maybe you need to deal with and... Maybe you're struggling with your assurance of salvation. Assurance of salvation is all over the Scriptures. And the people who I see who wrestle with assurance, nine times out of ten, are people who are playing in sin. And when our focus is off of God and His goodness and His faithfulness, our, our hope dwindles. It doesn't mean that our hope is gone, but we don't see it and we, we might doubt so what changed all of this for Thomas? It's found in the next verses where Thomas, or doubt, is crushed when God shows up. But Thomas is crushed when God shows up. Look at verse uh, 26. Eight days later, his disciples were inside again, and Thomas was with them. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them, and he said, Peace be with you. Eight days have passed. Thomas didn't see what they saw. He's been hearing this story. And he has said, unless I, unless I, unless I, I will never believe. Eight days have passed. The doors are locked because of fear of the Jews. Remember, there's this whole thing going on in Jerusalem that Jesus' body was stolen and the lie was being perpetrated and the Roman guards have been paid off and the close followers of Jesus Christ, they're a little fearful of what's going on. I would be too. And they're behind this locked door. And on this verse, it says um, that the Lord shows up. Although the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them. And Jesus shows up miraculously and he says, peace with you. It's to all of them he's saying this. This isn't just to Thomas at this point. It's to all of them. He said it twice in the previous verses when he came, peace with you. Peace with you. When doubting is conquered, when doubting is taken care of, what happened? it happens because of faith and the result is peace. It's peace. When you see the Lord, when you understand who he is and what he's done, the result is, is peace. In John 16, as Jesus was preparing them for all of this, he said to them, Do you now believe? Behold, the hour is coming, indeed it has come, when you will be scattered, each to his own home, and will leave me alone. Yet I am not alone, for the Father is with me. I have said these things to you, that in me you may have peace. In the world you will have tribulation. But take heart, I have overcome the world. And so Jesus shows up, he's in the middle of the room, and to all of them he says, peace to you. And then in verse 27 he goes on, and then he says to Thomas, Thomas, put your finger here and see my hands. And put out your hand and place it in my side. Do not disbelieve, but believe. And Jesus so lovingly comes to Thomas. I don't believe in any way this was a rebuke. Jesus it does for Thomas exactly what he'd done for all of the rest of them. And so Jesus says to him, Thomas, you needed to see the marks 
You needed to put your hand there. You needed to know it was me. You needed to know that I was alive. Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Put your hand and place it in my side. Don't disbelieve. Don't doubt. But believe. And the experience crushes him. He sees the Lord. He realizes Jesus Christ is risen. And in verse 28, he says, Thomas answered him, My Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. It's one of the most profound declarations of saving faith found in all of Scripture. He sees Jesus risen, the one who has died, paid the price, has risen from the dead, and Thomas cries out, my Lord and my God. It was his personal confession. He cries out with the highest terms he could think of, of this is God. And so either Thomas believed what he's saying now or he's blaspheming, but he believed this was the, this was the Savior. They were titles of deity, Thomas boldly and explicitly assigns these title to, titles to Jesus. And not only does he say them, but Jesus accepts them. My Lord and my God. Thomas finally gets it and Jesus receives what he says and accepts it because it is true. He is his Lord. He is God. Lord gives the picture of one who is over us, whom we are under. It's a picture of who's the master and who is the slave. And Thomas is saying, you are the master and I am your servant. You are the king. I am your slave. You are my Lord. You are my God. The world is slave to many, many things, to people-pleasing and money and things and ultimately to the prince of this world. But Thomas cries out, you are my Lord and you are my King. And the question for us is, is Jesus Christ your Lord and is Jesus Christ your King? I know that we wrestle with it. I know that we're not perfect at it. I know that we struggle, but is God on the throne? As you look back over your last week, as you look back over the things that you did, was, was God on the throne of your week or were you on the throne of your week? Sue and I were kind of moving back into marriage season. It's like a season around here at the church. We're moving back into marriage season. One marriage, a wedding this afternoon, another one uh, next Saturday, another one on May the 9th, and it's just like on and on and on it goes. And in all of the premarital counseling that we do with every couple, we get to a place somewhere in it where we talk about who's on the throne. Who's on the throne? Because the struggles that we have in marriages happen when we get somebody on the throne or who thinks they're on the throne who isn't on the throne. And that's where it all falls apart. That's where the problems come. That's where I become selfish and self-centered and because I'm on the throne. I'm the king of my castle. No, no man, you're not. And women, no, you're not. It's not a problem. It's not an equality of the sexist thing. It's a God's on the throne thing. 
And, and so Thomas is crying out, my Lord and my God. And he's saying, Lord, you are on the throne. I am the servant. And so how are you doing at that? How are you doing in that in your, in your marriage? How are you doing that with your time? When you think of your time and how it will be spent in this next week and what the, what the priorities of your time are, who, who would look at your calendar and say, here's who's on the throne? What about your time? Or what about your talents? The abilities that God has given. God's given people talents and they serve in the worship team and they use their talents like that. And, and that's great that they do that. But with your talents, the things that God has given you, who's, who's on the throne? How are those things being used? I'm going to use our, our elders as illustrations. Um, Dave Locke is a businessman. And so his neighbors come and they ask him questions about business-related things because that's what he does. And how does that tie to his faith and with his neighbors? Uh, Dave Naismith uh, works in computers and I'm sure lots of people ask him because he has this talent and people ask him about that talent. Uh, George is a, an accountant. What would do his neighbors come and say, hey, George, I'm working on my taxes and I don't know. Just the talents that we have with those things is God on the throne. It's interesting when you're a minister who lives on a street and how you use your talents. Uh, but on, uh, what day was that, Thursday, Friday? Friday, our neighbor Next door to us, we share a driveway. Um, they've been here two or three times to church. They were here at Sue's dad's funeral. And on Friday, she came knocking at our door. I knew that her dad wasn't well. And she's standing there with her sister and uh, tells us that her dad passed away. But she's not going to ask me for tax advice. She's not going to ask me to help fix her car. She's not, could you do my dad's funeral? Well, yeah because that's the giftedness God has given me. And so mine ties to ministry, and yeah, I'll go and help somebody jumper their car and try not to kill myself in the process, but the reality, we have gifts and talents that we have, and how are we using the ones that God has given you to demonstrate that he's on the throne in your life? could be your time, could be your talents, could be how you use your leisure time, it could be how you look at your career. Who's on the throne when it comes to your career? Lord, I'm, I'm willing to come under whatever you want in this. I'm going to set my own, my own priorities aside to be sure that you're on the throne. And if my delight and your delight is the same, you're going to give me that and that'll be great. And if you don't, I will still praise you. Your career, your family, your possessions, your money, Thomas cries out and he says, my Lord and my God, my Lord and my God. Can you say that? In the practical. In, in the way your week is set up for this week coming and what you did last week, can you say, this is my Lord and my God. And if you can't, then you need to get it right. You need to deal with that today. And then it goes down to verse 29. I love verse 29 because um, it, it points then to us. Having said to him, have you believed because you have seen me? Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Um, hey, that's us, folks. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. 
And the Lord has revealed himself to us and the veil has been lifted. The blind eyes see, the deaf ears hear, and we understand who Jesus is and we understand what he has done. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. There's a great uh, companion verse for this in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. Though you have not seen him, you love him. And though you do, you do now, excuse me, though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. We have not seen him, but you love him. There's, there's a five things about Christians that we see in 1 Peter 1, 8 and 9. First of all, that they love Christ. It says you love him right in the verse. And then it says they believe in Christ. And though you do not now see him, you believe in him. And then it says they rejoice in Christ um, and rejoice with joy that is inexpressible and filled with glory. And then we're experienced this even though we have not seen him. Though you have not seen him, you love him. You believe in him. You rejoice in him. A God working and, and in there in the middle of it, you receive the salvation of your soul. John 20 and verse 29 is for us. It's for followers of Jesus Christ who understand what God did, understand what Christ accomplished, and you have seen the Lord. You have seen the Lord. And you have in repentance and faith followed Christ. And your response to him should be, my Lord and my God. God, you're on the throne. You are the king. But maybe you're here today and you've never trusted Christ and you've been hearing this and understanding it and God has been opening your eyes and today you need to believe and be saved because Christ has revealed himself to you. He demonstrated the resurrection and all the people who saw it. We talk about all the proofs and all the rest of it and, and you've been hearing the gospel and today, today, you're gonna say, he is my Lord he is my God. He is the Savior. I cannot save myself. Today, I'm going to put my trust in Jesus Christ. Today, I will believe and be saved. No longer trying to do it on my own. No longer trying to work it out. Today is for the glory of Jesus. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. Accept the fact you're a sinner. You need a Savior. Jesus died for you. You trust in him, and you will be saved. Well, so what? Here's a question for you. What's God calling you to that seems to be impossible? Maybe for you when you came in the door, it was to salvation and God's calling you to be saved. You need to believe and be saved. But maybe God's calling you to something that seems impossible in your life right now and to trust him in a relationship or in a job or with a wayward child and... And you need to cry out and come under my Lord and my God and allow God to work these things out and trust him in what he is going to do. Thomas is a good example in many ways. He refused to say he understood when he didn't. He refused to pretend to believe when he didn't. And when he did understand and believed, he went all of the way, properly calling the Lord his God, his king, 
And from every account we have, he went on from there and served faithfully for the glory of his Savior, Jesus Christ. Behold your king on the cross in the resurrection. Behold your king in his presence to you. And you cry out, my Lord and my God. May we be people of God, living for the glory of God. Because truly he is our king, the savior, our hope. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for the truth of it, the challenge of it. Father, sometimes we doubt, sometimes we struggle, sometimes we wrestle. And Lord, when we're really honest with ourselves, because we get our focus onto ourselves and our weaknesses and off of you, an eternal, all-powerful God who can do far more than we could ever ask or think. And so, Lord, I pray that you would give us eyes today to see the risen Savior and to cry out in our walk, my Lord and my God, that we be people of God used for your fame and your glory. We ask in Jesus' name, amen.